This is John Stepling, and uh, this is Aesthetic Resistance, and this is podcast number something. Uh, we haven't done one for a couple of weeks, more actually. And with me uh, from Los Angeles, Magic. guys. Are, hi, guy. <laughs> John, how's it going? How are you? Good, good man. Uh, um, yeah. So, yeah, um, I wanted to uh, say two things to, to get us into this. Um, the first uh, was we, we did this last podcast, whenever it was, two or three weeks ago. Um, and I got a lot of very positive response. And a couple of people mentioned Carlos Castaneda that I mentioned at the end. So, yes, I know that was made up by Carlos Castaneda, those books. I don't think it matters. What's interesting, though, and we can even get back to this later, um, was the sort of sinister second life that Castaneda um, lived. Oh, my God, yes. Oh, my God, yes. Right? Yes. And yes. Yes. Uh, we'll touch upon that because it's, it's fascinating, I think. It's very fascinating. Um, I think he had five wives. Yeah, yeah. Living yeah, with yeah. him. And of course, it's all, you know, I think he, you know, he was a professor at UCLA, if I'm not mistaken. I believe so. And so it was this strange. And then when he died, apparently, it was a strange sort of afterlife. And when he died, apparently the, the five wives went on this very strange pilgrimage where they each had a separate trajectory it's very eerie and nobody really understood what they were doing it was like it was yeah like very it, very odd yeah and it's not fully um that 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 part of the story his afterlife has not fully been narrated yet uh nobody quite knows some of the details and um an old friend of mine oddly total coincidence who I used to work out with down at World Gym, you know, 30 years ago, Ralph Torgen, who we referred to as Big Ralph in those days, but everybody had Big before their name, um, did, a, did a documentary, apparently, on Castaneda. I've not seen it, but um, that's oh, just fascinating. curiosity about this whole thing. Anyway, yeah, we can, we can kind of circle back to that. But the second thing is I just want to mention... Um, Guy sent me um, little pieces by Murray Mednick and, a, and an essay by, by Martin Epstein about Padua, about the Padua Festival. And I just wanted you, I want to sort of pre-plug that book because I then wrote a small piece. Mm, yeah, um, beautiful piece, John, beautiful piece. And right. thank, thanks. Yeah, no, but I mean, Martin's was inspiring. You know, that yeah. Martin Epstein's piece was really inspiring. And Martin's going to do a podcast here with us. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Yeah, which will be really fun. And um uh but just just talk about the book briefly because I well, think you know, it's, it's in uh, a certain you know, way it's important. Yeah, I mean Murray and I have together published, you know, I think eight anthologies of new plays, many of them, you know, from the Padua writers, including you. I think you've been in two anthologies, same yeah. with O'Keefe and um, you know, many of the stalwarts. And I um you know, I arrived in Los Angeles at the tail end of the of the Padua Festival, and I've sort of been chasing the fumes ever since, in a way. But what is there? What else is there to chase? I mean, in a certain way, you know. And and I, um, you know, as the as the culture at large has sort of rocketed to the right, and uh, continues has continued to do so, right? So. Um, we always talked about it as the kind of capstone to this series of anthologies, publishing a kind of, you know, a book about Padua, and we often talked about it as a kind of workbook. We wanted it to be something that was useful to young playwrights and, um, you know, rather than kind of get caught up in, in that kind of elaborate production that there's not really any funding for, we finally just wanted to kind of touch base with that kind of experimental approach the theater making that is so rare today and of yeah. course with corona with corona and with covid it's completely gone because you can't even convene and and have a a, a theater experience anymore really no. um and um and and also it was a way john and you you kind of brought focus to this of of really you know this sort of the way that 
LA theater is eclipsed or shrouded in in sort of the American uh, cultural awareness, you know, just our, our you know, um, you know, it's just it's just something that's that's always just remarkable because it's in fact yeah. among the most interesting, if not the most interesting, place to make theater, in a way. Well, well, I, you know, I think when this, whenever this gets published, um, you know, we'll we'll do a another kind of podcast and talk about it. But I thought it was important from from the pieces I read and my own feeling revisiting Padua in a, in a direct way and and writing about it. Uh, I thought it was important in terms because there's nothing like Padua anymore. Right? Yeah, let me just sketch in. So for people who uh, don't know about I, the for people who don't know about the Padua Festival, yeah. it ran from seventy eight to ninety five. Yeah, please. It ran from seventy eight to ninety five. Murray Mednick started it in seventy eight at a, uh, a Padua Hills uh, theater space in Claremont, which was, I think. Um, you know, bequeathed to him by, and then they couldn't use the interior space. You guys couldn't use the interior space, so you you performed right. stage plays around the grounds, and this became something that happened every year, and then it began to move around, the festival began to move around, the different venues across the, the, the LA basin. And it was uh, always involved eight playwrights or so, and some of them, Irene Fornes was a, was a constant presence. John O'Keefe and you and Murray were, were sort of, uh, in some ways, the mainstays, but there was uh, Martin Epstein and uh, Leon Martel and Marlena Meyer and many others who kind of, and, and Julie Bear who came through and um, performed and worked in this way. And one of the things that I would just to link up to what we were talking about last time, John, is that one has to just pause and remark on how unusual it is in American theater and, and probably in European theater in general for playwrights to be working directly with actors. This is sort of what we talked about last time or part of what we talked about last time. And yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, that this is just a sort of, this alone made the festival something remarkable. And there's one point I want to make about this that has to do with repetition, which is the sort of theme of this, is that you know, the experience of being a playwright and standing at the back of an audience and watching a play night after night is an extraordinary experience. And it is, I think it is an immersion in what Gilles Deleuze means when he talks about repetition as a source of difference. And it's just something that I also remember Rene Girard somewhere, and I've never been able to find this, again, right. but I remember being struck by it, where he talked about what it is that people know who watch plays night after night that's really extraordinary and and uh, i just want to sort of lob that up there and see what you, what you well, want to do with it, yeah. I, say that. Uh, I mean a number of things about padua were unique you know it was incredible um but it was outdoors and uh and you would sometimes catch hawks flying above you'd hear coyotes in the distance you could see stars up there and that was an extraordinary experience i remember in standing in the back as you described watching my play and sometimes watching somebody else's play from the back the same experience and you look up at the sky and realize you're outdoors and that that somehow linked you with with a theatrical past it was a very profound experience um, and, and uh, you know, as is always the case, I guess, with hindsight, you, you don't fully appreciate, um, you know, how unique and unusual that was. And, um, and I remember that each year, Padua, we would, we would finish the festival, we'd go on for three weeks, or what, three weekends, four weekends, and um, everyone was a bit exhausted and tired, and we we chat. And then, of course, February rolls around, and Murray has a new piece, and suddenly it's you know, it's like getting yeah. pregnant again. You've forgotten the turmoil. Yeah, it's it's remarkable to me what Murray accomplished with all that. And of course, you know, very much ninety five after ninety five, he stopped, 
doing all that and then um you know wrote another 50 plays or has written yeah. another 50 plays or something and yeah. it's and it's exactly why and i know from having produced playwrights and so forth it's 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 absolutely draining in ways that you can't even really track you must know that too from your experience no it was ex it was incredibly draining it was i mean look it was summer camp and it was amazingly fun martin epstein covered some of that that quality um anarchic and and but just joyous and 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 sensual and erotic and dionysian and all these things but it was also a laboratory for um for for theater craft and science and you know it's more or less the same body of actors every year and they evolved was the playwrights and relationships evolved you know, I was going to say, I was going to say, you know, in some ways you were, it seems to me, you know, the pure product of Padua that way, in that you didn't enter from, you know, the Lower East Side theater experience, but you were minted in a way, although you'd been exposed to that, but you were minted in a way by the festival as a playwright. Yeah. And yeah, I think part so. of that for me was about you attending to and watching you know, what Lee Kisman could do, what Olan Jones could do, what Kathleen Kramer could do, and writing your plays for that, which is a absolutely remarkable, completely remarkable opportunity, what Lee Kisman could do, what Rick Dean could do, those actors. And yeah. again, it's this, it's this direct collaboration between playwrights and actors that's so extraordinary, easy to miss, because, um, you know, it's something that's not uncommon in LA theater, but it's completely uncommon elsewhere. Only the most successful playwrights are allowed that kind of uh, contact with writers, with the actors, I'm sorry. When I think back on Padua, we, I mean, it was such a natural thing to, to have happen. And, and it felt so natural. I remember funding people, council, arts council people and all would show up because it was their duty to show up, but they couldn't allow themselves to fully support it because it felt too risky, you know. Um, it, was, it was designed to be just offensive enough to um, certain kinds of people. The fact that this book serves as a kind of inspiration probably once it comes out. I, I think that what, another thing that struck me about the whole discussion of Padua is the way the perception, sort of the general public's perception of artists has changed. Uh, you know, some of it is the professionalization, the MFA um, sort of syndicate that that has colonized the whole notion of, of creativity and imagination. But um, the popular culture at large, um, you know, Hollywood demeans artists and, and portrays them in a certain way. And um, a lot of a lot of that. I think if you're young and you have a desire to write or be involved in theater, I have no idea how you would do that anymore. And I'm not mm -hmm. sure why you would want to do it anymore. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, so uh, for me, this falls under the, the rubric of, you know, the professionalization of art. You know, it's turning art into a profession rather than a vocation. And it's just very, you know, I mean, you can argue that the the professionalization of anything is a disservice to whatever that is. Yeah, yeah. But I, uh, you know, I um, I wanted also to to cut back to what you were saying about what would happen when these sort of culture um, oh, bureaucrats, yeah. in a sense, yeah. or uh, you know, these funders <laughs> or whatever, would come to Padua and how they would be put off. But of course, because you know, as you and I have often talked about, you know what the the true intention of those of those people in the the sort of apparatus of american culture is to is to prevent real art from happening i mean of course they all believe that their intention is the exact opposite but they're wrong you right. know they are right. the guardians of the normative and they are the guardians of the status quo and they want to reduce art to decoration and they want well, to drain away all transformative energy before they support something. And that, right. that, is just, that is just like the way to think about 
those folks, right? Yeah, and it's because it's even if their intentions are good, and some I knew some of those people, and they were perfectly nice, and you know, kind of cultured upper, you know, hawk bourgeoisie, and and they meant well, and you know, they cared about art in whatever strange way um, they they did, but they also sought to control. And, you know, they were representatives of a system of a society of control and domination and, you know, a hierarchical society. And they had to um, have their imprint on whatever it was they were going to fund. And Padua, by its nature, um, was uncontrollable. It, it, well, and, it, it, yeah, and you can, you, can, you can go further, I think, right, John, is that America is this deeply pragmatic, has this deeply pragmatic bias. Sure. And it has from the beginning, which goes like this, you know, we're coming to America to kill everybody and do all this stuff <laughs> because we're going to create God's perfect world. You know, it's pragmatic, right? And so America has this fundamental genetic intolerance for uncertainty and for questions that don't have answers and for paradoxes and for problems that don't have solutions. And, you know, all everything like that just goes into what might be called the Protestant box, which is like, yeah. it's over here. We don't open it. We don't talk about it. And we, we, it's really too upsetting. This is, of course, the insidious thing about, you know, identity politics. And this brings us back to identity and difference in a way. Right. Well, no, I mean, that's absolutely true. And, and um, I, I think that, you know, this 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 is a society that can only kind of a, a tolerate a, a very small amount of that kind of energy um, operative in the arts. It has a way of of working to neutralize uh, whatever is happening, whatever explosion of of you know creative energy happens. There is always a counter force. I mean, you see the CIA moving in to try to neutralize abstract expressionism. I mean, they didn't, but they worked at it. They infiltrated the Iowa Writers Lab. Um, it didn't matter really, but but the fact that those sort of the, you know, <laughs> the counter revolution as it were, um, is always at work in the U.S., it's it's um, and of course it's been perfected now. I, this is this is the the disturbing thing. Um, the 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 role of art is really marginalized and, and minimized, and and um, I suppose this is all stuff that that everybody should know. Back to repetition and difference, though. Um, I was thinking about how. Um, the one of the ways that you this 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 separation of um director from playwright from actor all the ways in which you know there is um uh these these artificial firewalls put up um <laughs> division of labor uh serves to to short circuit that energy right i mean oh absolutely i absolutely. remember i mean mm -hmm. No, I just, I remember the first time I had a play done on the second stage at the taper. And <clears throat> I, all, all I remember is that I kept walking up on stage and saying, no, this couch should be this way. And can we just sort of tear the end of it a little? And people screaming at me, you can't do that. You know, that's a union job. <laughs> You've got to, I said, but I just, you know, um, I'm used to doing that. I'm used to hanging my own lights even. Um, no, 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 you can't do that. And, and the lights were, one really interesting thing when I think back on it is um, they computerized the, the lights uh, at the taper. You know, there's a big lighting board and everything's computerized and entered. And, um, and it takes the human quality out of, you know, lights up, lights down. Uh, and you can feel that. It's yeah, the touch. I know those old fader boards. Those old fader boards. Yeah, but you can feel it, you know. And this brings me back to something also in connection to to identity and difference. And that is, I keep seeing this new wave of um, discussion and sort of disturbingly enthusiasm for for AI, for artificial intelligence, <clears throat> and this idea that the human brain is a computer. Oh, forget um, about it. You know, and, and you try to, t I had a conversation. I said, that is, 
it's that's not what the brain does you know first of all no. there's no programmer in the brain but never mind that you know that you are not an algorithm you are not yeah, a, exactly you know well it's I mean, the great fit right i mean you know it's a, it's a great fantasy yeah. yeah but the pull of this fantasy that's what's interesting because it's absurd of course it's like teenage science fiction or something but the pull that it has the reason it's so attractive that's worth discussing for sure in a sense vis-a-vis -vis the repetition in theater the way in which you know i i i think often of of no theater um yeah uh and the writings uh ab from you know very old historical writings um because it it it's the other um i don't know original foundational um base along with greek tragedy for for what we inherited um and and i feel like it gets forgotten sometimes but oh, um true. that that repetition is is so, I don't know. There is a connection somewhere in my brain between the appeal, this new resurgent appeal of AI and transhumanism. Well, let me just, let me just, I mean, you know, like, I mean, it's a very interesting, right? I mean, because in a lot of ways, you gotta, I, I think people underestimate the impact, although this has started to change, people underestimate the impact of money of metal coinage when it entered the world in about the sixth century BC, right before it produced two, it produced three phenomena right away. First was the tyrant suddenly became a figure. And um, there had never, you know, there had been despots before, but there hadn't been tyrants who could control armies simply because they owned mines. Mm. But there was also this, the other thing was that it created this system of value uh, that well, was invisible, yeah. right? And so suddenly, I mean, so it gave birth in a sense to the idea of abstract value. And that gave birth in a, to Greek philosophy. And that's why you see, if you look at the pre-Socratics and even, and of course, Plato and Aristotle, almost all of the metaphors for truth have to do with money. Yes. It's just see, astonishing, right? And so, but yeah. let me just finish, let me just yeah, yeah. draw the, the knot yeah. here, which is that, the, you know, Greek tragedy arose in the wake of tyranny. I mean, Aeschylus fought against, you know, Pesistratos and, and the first tyrants in Athens. I mean, he was forged by this battle against this new social figure of the tyrant. So let me just, I mean, and let me, so that issue yeah, of abstract value, you know, of truth as something abstract that floats above the world is steeped in the influence and the impact on, on human mind of the invention of coinage that suddenly transformed the entire world. And, right. and, and in some ways, we're still in the wake of that. And AI is simply the latest manifestation of yes. how, to, yes. how, to, you know, how to seize control of this abstract mode of knowing this, what, you know, this, this God trick of abstract knowing, unsituated knowledge. Now, and I just want to mention one other thing, John, which is that, you know, many people who look at cognition now, you know, use the, the formula, the 4E formula to counter this kind of view, which is that every moment of cognition involves four, four qualities. It is always embodied. It is always embedded. It is always extended. And, and it's also always enacted. And it's a very interesting, now each of those, each of those E's, the four E's, each of those E's represent a whole school of philosophy or psychology that has kind of come together in this moment precisely in order to, to, con, con, you know, to combat really the AI, the idea of, co of cognition as you know, this abstract disembodied. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, and, and so it's very interesting, but theater is right in the middle of all that. Is the, the, point the you know, the coinage, and, and you were the one that first mentioned that the Ann Carson book, which is, which is a very, very fine book. Um, but, but that exchange value, that abstract value, which came about through coinage and sort of the precursors to capitalism, exchange value equivalence, um, that became uh, the the prevailing uh, value system with with 
you know, the enlightenment. Um, that, that is the, that was one of, that's the sort of one of the cornerstones of Marx's thinking. Yes, of uh, course. Yeah. And, and uh, the, the, um, the way in which that's, sort of gets lost in sort of post postmodernism whatever it is we have and the rise of of this ai is very interesting because um i think that that um you know the 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 i'm getting completely lost here but because <laughs> like there's too many themes going yeah there's on. a lot of yeah um, but 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 the idea of you know the the social system. I mean, Rene Girard is very important because he understands the some of the a big chunk of the forces that go to shape social arrangements and the things that sustain uh, equilibrium in in societies. Um, and the but the insidious nature of of exchange value, of equivalence. I mean, that's one of the things that Adorno and Horkheimer talked about and a lot of the Frankfurt School, the writers talked about, is, is um, it's extraordinarily important in, in sort of 20th century and now 21st century Western society. I mean, that is where, you know, consumerism and- and oh, for sure. I mean, you know, it's- And all of these yeah. things um, are, are birthed from that and uh it's 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 curious to to bring this back to repetition in a sense because the one of the things that happens in in sort of the theater experience the 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 whole process of writing a play and staging a play and getting actors real actors into a space and moving them around is that um, there's all kinds of uncanny aspects to this that that can't be quantified. I mean, they're they're um, uh, they're ephemeral and strange and almost kind of mystical. And uh, I feel as if the if you look at the main stages of most American theaters, institutional theaters currently, and I do this every now and then, I go see what's being produced, um, are almost plays that are about um, denying those experiences. That's almost what the theme is, is to deny that there is this other realm, um, the, a, a realm of gods and myth and um, the uncanny and all of these things, the id, uh, that are in the service of somehow erasing that, of denying that it exists. And ultimately, AI and that whole phenomenon um, is, the, is the purest distillation of that denial, I think. Oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. I mean, you know, let me just, you know, just to bring it back, I mean, in, in a sense, this is really key, I think, to the sort of what you might call the Padua aesthetic, which is, you know, so you have in the, in the in the sort of capitalist marketplace. You know, you have. You know, it's the it's the famous problem or paradox of value. You know that uh, water is essential for every person's life. Uh, for a day, you know, you can't live without water, and yet it's it it it, it has no or until recently it had no commodity. Uh, value or no exchange value, whereas the diamond is completely useless, really, largely, but has this huge value ascribed to it, right? Which which has to do with the laws of of supply and demand, blah blah blah. But the the thing is, right, that price is always a representation of value, right? And mm -hmm. so right away in the center of dramatic practice, you have this issue of representation that links you to the phenomenon that's driving the commodity marketplace and I don't in the exchange economy right so the, the point is that from tragedy onward from Greek tragedy onward you can distinguish you can you can separate theater into um, objects cultural objects that that invoke representation in order to complicate or trouble or dis you know dis, disintegrate it or question right. it, subject it to pressure, or 
uh, theater that simply celebrates representation because it puts the audience in an abstract place where they're floating up above the world and are therefore kind of, in a way, immortal. And that's, of course, it's, it's, it's astonishingly seductive. Right. You know, it, it's astonishingly seductive because it tells me that I am that disembodied awareness that is immortal. And, it, and, and it's, I, you know, I, I want to believe that with every, every molecule <laughs> of my being. And right. yet, you know, and, and theater, you know, the, the tragic thread to me is always about complicating that picture and saying, yes, see, look, watch this. You, you love that. And now I'm going to take it away from you, either through uh, pointing out the inherent paradox of it or, you know, um, by through some form of irony, uh, whether it's Brechtian yeah. or Brickettian irony. And there's always a thread of that. And that's what motivates playwrights, I think. I mean, I, I, you know, I well, think, I think, I think there's a, the, the other intersecting sort of intersecting that whole, um, what you just described um, is text, right? Is language. Yes. And yes. Um, I, you know, I always, when I, students should, should spend it, you know, a year meditating on Wittgenstein because it is a, a kind of, um, you know, sobering uh, meditation on, on language. And the other was Eric Auerbach's Mimesis, yes. at least yes. the chapter on, on Homer and um, yes. King James Bible, because the King James Bible is, the, you know, and the King James Bible is absolutely just uncanny. I mean, it's the most remarkable body of writing I think that exists actually. Yeah. Um, but but that leads to Kafka, Dostoevsky, Melville, all of the writers of the, of the unseen. They yes. are writing ab about what you can't see or hear, but what is there, the unseen forces that shape life. And the paradox in that is that all of them, in another sense, are absolute materialists. You know, they're not yes fanciful dadaists or surrealists at all this is this is one of the things that to explain that would require probably your year's study of wittgenstein um because because paradoxes abound and and you know wittgenstein would probably say is that okay yes we see irony but we have to talk about what we mean by irony, you know, because there's irony and there's irony and there's irony. Oh, yeah, for sure. This, right. this is that tendency to write towards generalization and, and a, a kind of productive worldview. And I think that the ultimate reductive worldview ends up among other places in this, in this AI fantasy. Oh, for sure. Um, and sure. people talk about people talk about AI. So, well, it's a god complex, but I think, in a sense, it's also, or maybe more, the opposite of that. It's it's that you don't want to be a god. You want somebody. You want a machine to be the god. You want to submit to to a, some sort of parenting that is non-organic. There is something strange and perverse in that. So, yeah, I mean, it's you know, um, John, it's. But, well, go ahead. Let me let you finish. So. No, no, please. No, go ahead. Well, you know, it's just you're, you're right at the point of, you know, the, you know, one has to quickly shift and talk about the I mean, especially if you're talking about Wittgenstein, you're talking about the nature of logic, you know, and the sort of the arrival shortly after the period of the tragic play of Aristotle and the law of non-contradiction, where, you know, suddenly, which produced, of course, uh, all these famous and infamous paradoxes, that, you know, and the, and the truth is that we live in this world in which things can be, you know, can be true and untrue at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And, but, you know, of course, we're talking now on uh, the internet, which runs on a logic gate that's open or closed, completely binary. And I've, you know, I've often thought, and in fact, I've written about this, that the, that the, the door in the tragic on the tragic stage in the skene, the, the shed, you know, or the palace, that door is an anti-logic gate, you know, and when somebody goes through that door, they are present but absent. And even that yeah. present absence is a, is a paradox and a contradiction. I mean, Greek tragic drama was 
infused with a, a, a refutation of that binary logic that that is you know reaches its apotheosis you know becomes a, a god in ai as you point out yeah yeah. A machine god of the binary, and of course we love it because it 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 relieves us of the fundamental uncertainty or ambiguity of human existence, which is which we find troubling and difficult. And well, the, you know, you talked about the 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 predominance of coinage as 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 symbol that and metaphor, and that it was used. Yes. You know, yes. And that that gradually changed to the symbol and metaphor of the machine. Everything was, you know, genetic engineer, yeah. um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that happened with, with the industrial revolution and what came after that and the extraordinary importance of the invention of the microscope. Um, and I've written about this before too and talked about it, and we may have even talked about it, but that suddenly there was an unseen world that yes. could provide clues. And it also signaled the beginning of detective fiction which is not insignificant I somehow in this, yeah. but, but that, that, that uh, it was the beginning of psychoanalysis as well. Again, unseen forces um, were, were pushing us this way and that. Um, the paradox within all of this stuff is that, um, which is just what you just said, is that Americans, I think in particular, but Westerners, have a hard time dealing with um, things being both true and not true. That, yes. that, that yes. things can, can you know, um, both. Because what do you, how do you control them? You know, yeah. How do you control <laughs> things? If, and know, I said that in my Padua, <laughs> I said, you know, the seek, because we were talking about Murray's performance or anti-performance in my play, um, Theory of Miracles. And he was brilliant, you know. And I said, because he wasn't acting, he was just speaking in that kind of Gurdjieffian Talmudic way of yeah. his yeah, very yeah. carefully. And I said, that's probably the secret of all um, oracles. They doesn't matter. They just speak. It's in that's a sense, exactly right. That's the exactly carefulness right. of their speech that matters, not what they're saying. Um, and yet, from another perspective, of course, it matters hugely what they say. And people will go, well, which is it? It's, I say, well, it's both, you know. Yeah, it's both, um, right, it's both. And, and right. this, is, this is often hard. And well, this is why, mm -hmm. you know, a play like Pinter's um, uh, The Homecoming, you know, or, or any Heiner Mueller's Hamlet machine, any of these plays that are very difficult for audiences to, in quotation marks, make sense of. Yeah, right. You know, well, I mean, yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, you know, it's it is this thing, right? It's you know the the fundamental paradox of you see it in in Oedipus, especially in Greek tragedy, was you know Heraclitus's statement that man's character is his fate, because it's a it's a statement that works in both directions, as Oedipus the play illustrates. Man's right. character is his fate, but his fate is his character also, and and that little. That little paradox, the symmetry of that statement, which in Heraclitus is three words, <laughs> is, uh, it, you know, it just dismantles all binary thinking. It just dismantles it. You can't, and, you know, in the play, he gives you a lived experience of that, and it just fucks with your mind, you know, because Oedipus is both innocent and guilty. And so, right. you know, and it's that, it's, it's what Joyce talks about, about awe, pity, and terror. It's those things together that produce that experience of terror. I'm terrified because I don't know how to control it. And I'm in right in the heart of what's, uh, what's so elusive and difficult about human existence. Now, for me, when you get to Beckett, you know, you get this thing and I'm, I'm working on rehearsing a, a version, an online version, which we probably never do, of, of Endgame. And it's just fascinating to work with some really strong actors uh, um, Gil Gale, who you know as Clove, who was in Theory of Miracles, I think, and uh, Clark Middleton, who is uh, just a wonderful actor, right, as Ham. And, and, and I'm, you know, it's just amazing to investigate that text because every moment is a kind of, is like a spatial and temporal paradox. Like the way that Ham and Clove completely miss each other continuously and are engaged in this sort of codependent, unending cycle is itself like a living stage paradox. And this is why I think 
it's it would be easy to call Padua really a you know a, a, a tradition and O'Keefe I think is a little bit outside of this in a, in a wonderful way that complicates it but is really a post Beckettian exploration in the context of Los Angeles yeah. Of yeah. kind of irony you know Beckett is so central to Shepard to Fornes to Mednick to you you know, in a way that's just underappreciated, I think. And, well, I and think the other, and I was thinking about this after writing the piece about Padua and reading Martin's piece, and I was thinking back, and I think, you know, you have Pinter and you have Beckett, um, hugely disruptive, and, and as a sort of coda to that, you have Sarah Kane. But in German language, you have Bernhard Handke and Müller, and um, they're hugely significant. It maybe we haven't yes, quite caught, haven't quite caught up with Bernhard's plays yet. Bernhard's uh, Bernhard is just fascinating to me. Yeah, I mean he's he's really um, monumental, and like a party for Boris, yeah, is a play that will haunt you forever. You know, it's it's um, and ever more disturbing. If ever there was a Trump era play, it's a party for yeah. Boris or his, histrionics. History yeah, of history yeah. <laughs> And of course, Honke, yeah. you know, Honke, who gets the Nobel Prize um, and, you know, is, is the Western press just goes bananas and, and, and blows up. Oh, this is a horrible Milosevic sympathizer. Blah, blah, blah. And it is interesting that both Pinter and Honke were on the artist's call, the Milosevic, the Committee to Defend Milosevic, as was I. Um, and everybody got tons of grief, you know. Right. And I think, wow, subsequently, two of those guys won Nobel Prizes. There's a paradox there, too. But it's not anyway. Too for you, John. There you go. <laughs> um, it's, uh, but it's, it's, I think those three playwrights are hugely um, important as well, because... Uh, I, I, that's an astute point, of course, you know, and it's sort of, that speaks to kind of the Brecht lineage, I guess. Although I would have to look at Bernhardt versus Brecht, you know, it's sort of, um, you know, for Brecht, it's just very interesting because my favorite Brecht play, of course, is Jungle in the Jungle of Cities. Mine too, mine too. Uh, you know, because it's his most, it's his most, in a certain way, it's his most Deleuzian play. It's a, complete, it's a completely fantastic play. Um, it's, um, that play is, can, I've always felt that play was connected to Wojciech somehow. Oh, for sure. For sure. You know, yeah. For sure. And and yeah. he let go of a lot of that. Um, the ball, of course, is even more void checky and Yeah, I mean ball is just kind of irritating in the way that you know <laughs> in the irritating. jungle. <laughs> but but see Honky with Caspar yeah. um crossed the lawn into something. Um that's a that's a profound play, but it's also a a, a pivotal play. I think it occurs to me that it's a Wittgensteinian play too. Yeah, actually. and I think it is. I think it is, and I think it's a very um, important play to revisit and and ponder. You know, because you have these offstage voices, and and um, it's well, cured, and, mm -hmm. just and you, would, you, you would have ahead. to continue and, and talk about Kreutz and Fassbinder. Yeah, if, yeah. You know, oh in terms God. of their influence on you, and that's very true, actually. That, um, you know, Kreutz is, yeah, was hugely influential for me in a, in a very direct way. Um, and the person who handed me a copy of Kreutz was Sam Shepard. Um, we I've told that story, but we were in a bookstore and I ran into him and he just won the, the Pulitzer for um, um, whatever the play was. Uh, anyway, and um, we were chatting. Barry Child, I think. Right? Barry Child. And he, I said, yeah, congratulations. He said, oh, well, but that's the sort of play that wins Pulitzer's if anyone's going to win it. And I said, okay, I don't understand that, but perhaps someday I will. Um, and he said, but give me a book I don't know, and I'll give you a book. I said, great, let's do this. So I gave him um, uh, Heinrich von Kleist stories. Oh, yeah. And um, he gave me Kreutz. Oh, that's so amazing. That, that little volume, Farmyard and Other Plays. Yeah. Um, which I read about 75 times. That whole uh, generation of German language writers, Bothell Strauss is one of them, Martin Walzer is one of them, um, not to be confused with Robert, but um, not, you know, Bothell Strauss is not a major writer, 
but um, but a, but he's a very good playwright. And it's interesting because Richard Foreman did that 1982 production. I think it was 82, of um, oh, what the hell is the name about the museum? I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, and with Richard Jordan was the lead. God, and at the public. I didn't theater. see it, but I was a big Richard Foreman consumer back then. Yeah, and it was interesting to see Foreman deal with a different kind of play than his own. Right. Brilliant, brilliant. It's shattering, um, staggeringly brilliant. But anyway, th those German language playwrights were very significant for me, and and they took me back to um, to Buchner and and von Kleist and and um, von Kleist famous essay, of course, on the marionette theater. On the that, marionette theater. <laughs> that's a whole lineage too. That's a whole direct branch of influence um, on on the theater we're talking about and. I think that the other thing that, and you're pointing towards this with so many of your remarks, I think, and because and it's, it's really insightful, uh, is, is Kafka, and because I think of like Adorno and Benjamin had these letters back and forth about Kafka, and they were debating the space um, in Kafka that is created. And, and, and I, I think it was Benjamin said it was a theater space and Adorno said it was a cinematic space. And in this case, Benjamin was right. But, um, but that, that they saw the importance of that space. And it is, I think, if you, you read The Castle and you, you think about it in these terms, the way in which voices move through that narrative is very akin to the King James Bible. That's so interesting, yeah. Um, and and so you know it's um, it's there I mean, are it's, it's it's you know Kafka it's funny it, it's like Kafka is all of Kafka is is something that Isaac speaks when he's on the altar beneath the knife you know I mean it's like it's like all of Kafka just emerges right from that moment in a certain way just to kind of link up to the King James Bible. When you were talking, I was thinking about Orson Welles' The Trial. I don't know last time you saw that movie, but, yeah. um, you know, well, it's, see, it's astonishing to see that just in terms of the cinematic quality of Kafka. It's astonishing to see that movie and to imagine that it could have been made. Yeah. It's like, what kind of yeah. world existed that is so different from our own? You know, that Well, isn't it interesting? It's so interesting to see that's a boy, that's like a 10 hour conversation. That's a really profound note because that, if you look at say the films of Christopher Nolan, I'm not, I'm just picking that out of the air, but it's a really good example. Um, Cause he has a new one coming out and oh, yeah. so not interested, but I'll see it anyway. Um, and you compare that to Orson Welles, the trial, or you compare that to, to Kafka's novels or the plays of Bernhard and Hanke, Kaspar in particular, let's say, the ride across Lake Constance. Um, the space there um, is, and compared to the, 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 what Christopher Nolan thinks of as, because Christopher Nolan is creating the space of AI in a sense. Totally. Right. Yeah. This is this is. I have to compliment him on his faith. his his piece about Dunkirk. I, I forget if it was named Dunkirk or whatever. It was actually pretty restrained and interesting. I thought I didn't see it. Yeah, I have nothing. I have no huge. <laughs> but I but mostly I just look at his at his films and just go, why? Yeah. Why? Billions of dollars spent. Yeah. And but, but exactly the space, yeah. the, the space, the space that he creates in the world he creates on screen. That space is like B.F. Skinner space. It's, I don't know how else to put it. It's like, it is a space that is purely born of screens and algorithms and a binary worldview and this kind of narrowing down of cognition and a certain kind of denial that we're talking about of the uncanny. You know, it's, it's very interesting if you look at binaries, right? I mean, just to, this may be a little bit of a, a side line here, but I always feel like, it, you know, there's a, 
there's a French anthropologist whose name is Louis Dumont, who did this study of the Indian caste system. And he wrote about the way that binaries actually are always, that one, one side of the binary is actually always dominant and encompasses the other. So the classic example that he uses is that right and left hand, you know, the right hand is like the entire body and the left hand is encompassed within the, the, the right hand. And, mm. you know, or another one is like man and woman, you know, mankind encompasses the feminine. Right, right, right. And it's just an interesting thing because, it, you know, binaries always conceal this, this hidden hierarchy. And it's on the basis of that hierarchy that the social hierarchy rests, you know. And it's it's just hidden yeah, and concealed yeah. in a in a weird way inside well, they, of kind of false yeah. equivalence, you know. And that's why well, binaries so cool. always yeah. seem like is binaries always seem like even. Like, well, you could go that way or you could go that way. Yeah. Well, no. In fact, there's always a kind of hierarchy. Kind no, of no, but dominant. that's an important point. It's such an important point. And you could look at um, like identity politics and what it's done to American theater for one thing, but how identity politics rests on these false equivalences, this world of, of screen space. I mean, that sounds crazy to say that identity politics is a product of, of, you know, screen space, but on a certain level it is. Well, right. Well, what you're, what you're talking about there, right there, John is, is identity versus difference, which comes yes. first. Yeah. It's the crucial right. question. I mean, this brings us back to Deleuze. It is yep. in Deleuze, it is, it is difference at the origins. And difference here is, you know, it, the way it pertains to theater, difference here is Dionysus, the God who was always other. And yes. it's just, it seems like, it seems like, oh, well, we're gonna, we're going to um, liberate, we're gonna undo social injustice by embracing, uh, you know, the um, disadvantaged identities or, or you know, and so forth. And but the crucial point is that you're 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 buttressing the regime of identity on which all social oppression rests. And of course, it's no it's no accident, right? That the the era of 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 identity politics is also the same era when a tremendous amount of money went from the American middle class up to the top 0.01 percent. The two right. are completely linked. Yeah, it's it, it, and and you know to disastrous results for any kind of progressive politics. Actually, well, and I mean, you look at you look at I mean, whatever, however one looks at the COVID phenomena, and just putting that aside, the lockdown, these very authoritarian lockdowns, you know, twenty six million jobs lost. There's going to be an absolute, you know, biblical catastrophe crisis of homelessness across america yes it, it is it's happening you can see it yeah already. i mean because delinquencies and, and and foreclosures and that that stuff is all kicking off now and um it feels like um the product of that confusion on one level and that capitalism and a class-based society um is this is where it's going to end up somehow no matter what. And I think it was Burroughs, really, who, who, you know, wild, this is wild boys. I mean, we're on the cusp of, of wild boys. Um, and, and it's, it's that same deformed sort of disfigured logic that, that is in play always with these things. And why there is, I mean, you look at, it's very interesting, just as I'm just sort of free associating here, so forgive me. But if you look at American television now, um, and of course there is no America because of the COVID, but up right up until the shutdown almost, um, and you look at you look at the way Hollywood makes TV series and the way these franchises were, then you watch European because I just got done doing a, a sort of binge watching of several shows from Finland. <laughs> you know, and and no more ambitious, you know, in terms of their art product. They were genre material. They were kind of noirish detective things and whatever. But the difference is really profound. Then I watched a few shows from Belgium, Flemish speaking. Again, the difference is profound. It's subtle sometimes because it looks like they're 
they're doing kind of imitation of American, um, you know, television drama. Um, but the differences are, are extraordinary. I mean, just extraordinary, but, but you have to sit for a minute and think about it and you realize that, that these are characters who are uh, actually um, have contradictions and, and speak, sit and respond and think thoughts. And in American television, nobody thinks, you know, characters don't think. They, they occasionally sort of solve problems, the, like from, you know, God strikes them and they solve a problem. But very rarely do they, do we actually see the, the long drawn out process of thinking through something. Um, anyway, that was just a sidebar on this because it's, it's, it's disturbing in a way that we we we're now living so completely within this um, this kind of disfigured logic. This, this well, you know, and it's right. And I mean, imagine how much the world would improve immediately if one were just to completely dismantle Fox News. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and why not? Exactly, why not? You know, yeah. why well, I mean, not? Look, look at the re look. I, I'm just struck daily with. I mean, here you have this, you know, incredible superpower state. You know, the American century, and we're <clears throat> and we're having an election um, against the backdrop of a kind of hyped pandemic, a politicized pandemic between you know, two elderly men, both cognitively impaired in different ways. And it's, they're so impaired that nobody wants them to debate because it would be, you would know, be sad. cruel and unusual to watch. Right. And you think this is, this is the result of these kind of, this is the result of this confusion of, of, um, uh, of representation, in a sense. Oh, for I sure mean, it, it is. Really it, is. You know, and mm -hmm. you know, and it's the end game that began really in 1968 with Nixon's first or second right. campaign. And right. you know, and it's this, you know, it's it's really how far can we push? How how far can we kind of uh, cultivate mass delusion as we? <laughs> as we siphon off all the motherfucking money. And, yeah. you know, of course, it's like right out of the, you know, greedy capitalist playbook. And you're just, it's just, it's so lurid and shocking. It's like, yeah, how it's, you know. it's, it's really staggering because, you know, you have, um, you have this transference of wealth to the top 1%. Oh my God, it's just And they're just, they nakedly flaunt their violation of all rules and everything. They don't have to wear masks. They don't, that's for, they, they push the obedience. You know, people have to be muzzled. And I mean, the, all of the, and there's another aspect I was thinking about because I was reading a, a report from pediatricians about mothers with their babies and that they can't wear their mask all day because it's going to fuck up their kids, right? And do you know the still face experiments? Or yeah. The famous yeah. experiment, right? And so some, and this is what's happening on some level. You well, know. well, this is, you know, John, but this also circles back to, you know, the pathology of money. And, yeah. you know, all you have to do is, is look at studies of what, of what wealth, even imagining yourself to be wealthy, produces instantly um, unethical behavior and pathology. I mean, even, you know, these studies that they do, they're very clear, these cognitive studies where, you know, um, people just imagine themselves to be wealthy and their responses on, te on tests of various kinds is altered. And this just gets back to that thing of what happens when you are um, leveraged out of the world that you share with other embodied human beings into a world of abstract right. value where you have a tremendous amount of value. It's, it is, it is, it is, it corrupts the soul. This is of course what people understood for, for centuries, right? But we've forgotten it because 
Adam Smith told us that uh, the invisible hand would take our evil impulses yeah. and turn them to the general good. Hayek and yeah, which is, which is, right, which is, of course, what we all want to believe. And so now it's this competition for who can be worst. Who, how bad yeah. can you be? Because bad is good. That's its own weird paradox, right? Well, to bring but, this back for a, one second, I don't mean to interrupt you there, um, the, the back to writing and young writers and inspiration and all of these things um you know the the uh what triggers an idea to create to write um is always very elusive right we never kind of it's like suddenly something occurs to us and and we start writing it down and i think that that uh for for someone trying to create and not even just playwrights but just any kind of poetry fiction anything with text um you you there is so much to um to kind of have to avoid to unlearn do you know that franco moretti essay um it's a new left review on the prose of the world bank no but i'd love to read it yeah i mean i'd love to read it yeah, I mean, I, I wrote technical, I wrote technical manuals for a bank for a while in New York. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, you know, John, it's, it, it, the thing about the poetic, of course, is that you're taking this representational phenomenon of language. And you're, you know, a poet is always linking that representation to, to what it arises out of, which is a kind of a silence, right? Right. And and that's the sign of the poetic, and that's to me anyway. Well, and this is what this is what Bly said, you know, um, too. And that's why I, I just to finish my thought that that young writers have to do what, you know, what Moretti is in. If you read that essay, it's a cautionary essay. They they need to read that too because that's the prevailing language of all institutions. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I mean, this is yeah. the work of the poetic, right? Is to yeah. is to undo the the separation of the symbolic from the actual world, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and there's one other thing I wanted to mention just before, and I know we're both, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're both right. skipping around a lot here, but it, I just when we were just talking about wealth, I was talking about this phenomenon of, you know, I wrote this thought piece once about Charles Koch looking at his window of his limousine and seeing a homeless man and trying to analyze, why does Charles Koch, why does that experience, why does that encounter trigger hatred in Charles Koch, fear and hatred? Well, it's obviously because mortality that's so visible in someone who's homeless or so vulnerable, that, that shared mortality is precisely what Charles Koch knows is waiting for him. He's gonna die just like that homeless guy and he hates him for it. Right. He hates his own vulnerability in the form of that homeless man. This is why the, the, the wealthy hate the poor. Yeah. It's so paradoxical, but it's like you cannot forget it. The wealthy hate the poor because the wealthy are just as mortal as the poor and they hate that fact. It, it, it removes all advantages. It, it, it undermines well, my, the whole game. My final thought apropos of all that is that you know, we're talking about AI and we're talking about a number of different things here connected to that and, and the history of coinage and all of this. And we've talked before about the effects of social media and the internet and people living their lives on screens and the damage it does to, um, to minds still in formation to children and adolescents and um, and it does. There's no question that it that it has a harmful effect, whether it's permanent or not. And the exact nature of that damage is yet to be determined, I think. But but there's no question that people have trouble thinking anymore. Thinking, they have trouble with attention. For sure. And um, I think that that we're seeing right now, this moment historically, is is the the final act of of um, the Enlightenment stroke Industrial Revolution meets, you know, the, the advent of, of, you know, digital cyber. Yes. You know, technical yes, John, I, I really think and, this is true, right? 
Well, go ahead. This, let me let you finish. This your is point. the screen. The world of the screen yeah. has done this. Has created this material world. Yeah, and I think that the invention of the internet and of social media is on the same order as the arrival of coinage. Yes. You know, in terms of this radical experiment that is being lived out in in real time with, and this it, it seems to me that this is the the a call for another podcast between you and I, where we really look at that. <laughs> no, I would love to. I think this is great. You know, because I really think it is. I think that what we've witnessed in the last 15 years is just like what happened when coinage arrived in the world. Yeah. It's no, that. it's astonishing. It's a, it has accelerated. That's one of the things. The last 15 years, everything accelerated way beyond anything I would have predicted. Um, and and uh, that's, that's one of the problems is with people grasping you know, the most basic reality around them. Anyway, okay, let's wrap up. We'll do another one. But yeah. um, thank you, Bob. Yeah, thank I, you. And uh, I hopefully have Martin Epstein on soon and some other people. Um, and, uh, you know, aesthetic existence uh, on SoundCloud. And um, thanks, Guy. And we'll, we'll, um, we'll do this very soon. That's All right, it. sounds good, John. Take care. Okay. Have a good day. Adios. Right. Yeah. Bye.